Now, if you'll turn with me in your copy of God's Word, we'll be looking at Matthew chapter 5 again as we continue our thoughts about the law of God. We'll be repeating, as a reminder, uh, verses 17 through 20, but then we'll be continuing on with verses 38 through 48. So please give your attention to God's Word. As we begin in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Continuing in verse 38, Jesus continues, saying, You have heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, Go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore as your heavenly Father is perfect. That's where we'll end our uh, reading of that section of God's Word for tonight. So as we continue thinking about God's law, Jesus here is, he's explicating another section of God's law. And Jesus, you have to remember, in the context of the whole of the Sermon on the Mount, he's dealing with Christian life or living in the kingdom of God. And the question that we're dealing with here tonight is, well, how are we living in the kingdom of God to live in a sinful world and to deal with evil people when they sin against us? And Jesus teaches that we are to love our enemies. So Jesus takes two commands here, one which is an echo through the Old Testament. We see it in at least three places explicitly, and that is eye for eye. Tooth for tooth, life for life. 
So the lex talionis, the law of justice. But then he also takes this idea of loving your enemy. And loving your enemy and this command of justice are actually very, very closely related because both are teaching about enemies and what it means to love our enemies. So what I'd like to think about first and what I hope that we see tonight and think about tonight is more about the biblical definition of love to start with because we're supposed to have love even for our enemies. And I do admit freely that Jesus is teaching me something here and us something here that at least I don't know as much about as I would like to. I would like to know more about this. But by God's grace, I want to do what he calls us to do in Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 1, where he calls us as dearly loved children to live a life of love. So I want to know what this means and know more about it. And I hope we do tonight. So when you say, Chris, well, what do you mean teach us about love? Because doesn't everybody know what love is? And there's a sense in which that's true because Jesus is teaching that even pagans know what love is. They love those who love them. There's a natural love that all of us have as we're born into the world. We love those who love us. But you see, that kind of love, as we think about the kingdom of God, that kind of love is lacking something. Jesus says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Don't even the tax collectors do that? Those people who really have no concern for God or for his law. And Jesus says, well, if you're greeting only your brothers, don't even the pagans do that. Those people who have no concern at all for God. And don't we want a love that's better than that? So, of course, there's that kind of love that we have for ourselves naturally. And that is that love for ourselves. And so it's in this context of love for those who love us. And in the context of love for ourselves we love those who love us, we love ourselves, that we also naturally understand what enemies are. We know what enemies are. Those people that Jesus here tells us to love. And what are, what are enemies? Because even the tax collectors and the pagans, they have enemies too, right? So everyone also has natural enemies. Like broadly speaking, an enemy is anyone who stands in opposition to you. They might hurt us, they might insult us. They might take something that's ours. They might embarrass or shame us. They might oppress us. So an enemy opposes us personally. And we know what it means to be offended by those persons who, who offend us. So natural love, natural love for ourselves, that produces a natural reaction to our enemies. So how do you react? How do you react when you're hurt? How do you react when you find that a friend has been talking behind your back when somebody says something that offends you? If you're sitting around the dinner table as you open up your Facebook and you see something that just burns you. Maybe they burn your political party or heaven forbid your football team. Or we can think of it too as we come back into another election season. It feels like we never left the last one. But how do we feel as 
our rights, even as citizens, we feel that those rights are being taken away as they're being eroded. These things offend us. And we know what it means to be hurt in this way because of our love for ourselves. And our natural reaction is not love for enemies. It's revenge. There's something in us that says, well, when you hurt me, I will hurt you back. And that's really that part of the law that Jesus is dealing with here tonight. Eye for eye. But you see, with revenge in the law, and this is what Jesus is getting at as we talked about this morning, as he presses that law deep into our hearts, our natural response of love for ourselves particularly is revenge. But there's a law against that. There's a law against that. And so in Romans chapter 12, I'll remind you, Romans chapter 12 quotes the law from Deuteronomy chapter 32, where Paul says, Do not take revenge, my friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, It is mine to avenge. I will repay. So to help us think about our understanding of this commandment to love our enemies, for my three points, which I think, again, are on your bulletin for tonight. There they are. These all come from 1 John chapter 2 and verse 7. And they're sequential. Where John writes about the commandments. And John says this, which is our first point. He says, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. But then he goes on in point 2 and says, Yet I am writing you a new command. So when I read this, I'm okay. I have trouble with it. Yet I am writing you a new command. That'll be our second point. And he goes on for our third point and says, its truth is seen in him and in you. So we'll be using these three things as a point to help us understand this part of God's law tonight. You know, John Newton, you may know him as the author of Amazing Grace, and he said that ignorance of the nature and design of the law is at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. So it's a misunderstanding of the law, he would say, that's at the bottom of most of our religious mistakes. And so if you're like me and you have trouble with what John says here in 1 John because it seems to be apparently contradictory, I actually, as I think about these things, I hope you're with me and that you'll find these to be beneficial and helpful. So for our first point, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. John is saying this is nothing new. And I think Jesus is saying in our text here too, this is nothing new. Jesus tells us, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets. But to many in the church today, I'll remind you from this morning, for many in the church today, they think that's exactly what he's doing. And it is particularly to texts like this that they'll turn to. Because here Jesus says, well, you've heard that it was said, eye for eye. That's a direct quote from at least three places in the Old Testament. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person. So the idea that people will sometimes bring to you is that Jesus is saying, well, that was the Old Testament, but we have something better here in the New Testament. Or Jesus also says in our text for tonight, he said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But I tell you this, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you. 
So many understand in the church today that Jesus is saying, here's what the Old Testament teaches, but I have something better for you. But I also wanted to remind you that Jesus also says right here, I have not come to abolish the law or the prophets. Not one letter, not the least stroke of a pen, not the dot of an over an I or the cross of a T will disappear from the law. So the first thing I think Jesus is doing here is that he's, re he's removing false teaching and mistaken ideas about the law, including the false teaching and mistaken ideas that we'll hear in the modern church. John tells us, I am not writing you a new command. I'm not writing you a new command. Love for enemies. This is my point here under this first part, even though I hope it doesn't get too confusing. Love for enemies is explicit in the law. It's explicit in the old covenant law. It's even explicit in the law, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, and life for life. So if you'd like to look with me at Deuteronomy 19, I want to look at one of the three places. We can talk about the other ones after worship if you like. But I'd like to look at one of the places where we find this law in the Old Testament. And that's in Deuteronomy chapter 19. I want you to notice that in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 19, if you look at the headings that are there in your Bible perhaps, maybe they, I don't know if you have them on your phone as you scroll, but this is in the context of cities of refuge. And you remember that in the Old Testament, cities of refuge were given when somebody was accused of murder. And I want you to notice this. Revenge in the Old Covenant law in Deut Deuteronomy chapter 19. Revenge is forbidden. It always has been. So if you look at, with me at uh, verse 4, the law says, This is the rule concerning the man who kills another and flees there to one of the cities of refuge to save his life. One who kills his neighbor unintentionally, without malice aforethought. For instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood, and as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in a rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him, even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice aforethought. This is why I command you to set aside for yourselves three cities. Revenge is forbidden. The idea being that you don't have a full understanding of what happened, so you don't have the right, even though all appearances say that guy is guilty. We have the dead body. He deserves to die. God says, no, I will set aside three cities that you can flee to in a case like this. Notice first that revenge is forbidden. And notice second that this idea of eye for eye is a law of perfect equity. I don't want to downplay for one second that there is perfect justice for sin that every sin will be requited. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, 
and life for life. So I want you to know that there is also this perfect law of equity. There is real repayment for sin. So if you look with me at verse 11 in Deuteronomy 19, but if a man hates his neighbor and lies in wait for him, assaults and kills him, and then flees to one of these cities, the elders of his town shall send for him, bring him back from the city, and hand him over to the avenger of blood to die. Show him no pity. You must purge from Israel the guilt of shedding innocent blood so that it may go well with you. There is perfect equity in the law. We cannot cover that over. But I also want to say about this, that this is a law, as we'll get to in a moment, it's also a law of restraint. Because it's not two eyes for one eye or two teeth for one tooth. It's not, you killed, so we'll kill your whole family. Because that is what we are likely to do in our sinful anger and response when we are offended. The law also reigns in excessive punishment. If you look at the other examples of eye for eye and tooth for tooth, you'll see that foreigners... Even an Egyptian, right after they came out of Egypt, they were protected under these same laws. And that favoritism was not to be shown to the rich, and it wasn't to be shown to the poor. So we're still in Deuteronomy chapter 19, and if we look at verse 17, well, I guess we could look at 16. If a malicious witness takes the stand to accuse the man of a crime, the two men involved in the dispute must stand in the presence of the Lord before the priests and the judges who are in office at the time. The judges must make a thorough investigation. And if the witness proves to be a liar, giving false testimony against his brother, then do to him as he intended to do to his brother. You must purge the evil from among you. The rest of the people will hear of this and be afraid, and never again will such an evil thing be done among you. Show no pity. Life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot. And I want to point out about this, that as we think about the law and the seriousness of the punishment that goes with it, there were priests, there were judges who were officers who sat in judgment of the case at the time. They had to make a thorough investigation. And if the witnesses proved to be liars giving false testimony, then the same thing they wanted done was going to be done to them. They had all the legal protections of innocent until proven guilty. So what we see as we think about John, I'm not writing you a new command about loving your enemies, is we see that eye for eye, it describes judicial court proceedings. It doesn't describe our personal vengeance But over time, what's happened, and it really doesn't take much time either, does it? Because we know this in our own selves, that when we're offended, we don't want to do to others as they've done to us. We want to do worse than what they've done to us. And what the Pharisees have done that Jesus is addressing here, he's saying, you've taken the judicial law not to protect a person from vengeance, but you're taking the judicial law and you're using it as a means of personal vengeance. 
So they've turned this law into a personal justice code. They've actually turned it into a sinful pursuit. And so Jesus says, well, you have heard that it was said by the Pharisees, by those people who distort the law, love your neighbor, but hate your enemy. But Jesus says, but I tell you, love your enemies. And this is something that is not new. This has always been. As John says, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. And I also want to point out that it's not just in the law of the old covenant. It's not just explicit, as I've tried to show you in Deuteronomy chapter 19, but it is the tenor of the whole Old Testament. Love for enemies isn't just explicit, it's implicit. It's in the lives of all of the prophets. It's in the lives of all the patriarchs. So I want you to think about the life of Joseph. I want you to think about how this is, this is all over the law of the Old Testament. This is not a new law. So think of the life of Joseph. Joseph, one of the 12 tribes. He's one of the very foundation stones of Israel, of the people of God. And you might be very familiar, I hope you are, with the life of Joseph. If you don't know the ending, if you didn't know the ending, of what happened with Joseph and his brothers, what would you expect? I think this is one of the great ways we have to read the scriptures. Even if we're very familiar with them, we have to read to a certain point and say, you know, if I didn't know the ending, what, what do I expect would have happened? And so as we look at the story of Joseph, Hollywood would love this because what we have is we have the potential for the greatest revenge story ever told. And it's a real story in history. So Joseph, he's only 17, and he's sold by his own brothers into slavery. And they took his garment from him. And then as Joseph enters into slavery, his master's wife tries to sleep with him. Repeatedly. In Hollywood, he would have failed. But he, unlike so many, Joseph was faithful But you'll remember that she also, like his brothers did, she took his clothes and he was accused of attempted rape and he's thrown into prison. But Joseph was still faithful in prison and he tried to help those who were with them. And he had only one request for the baker and for the wine wine steward. He said, remember me, but he was forgotten. And finally, if, if my counting is right, it was after 12 or 13 years from when J- Joseph was sent into slavery, he finds himself in power, second only to Pharaoh, after he interprets Pharaoh's dream. And I think that there is a point in Joseph's life where he realizes, this has been 13 years. There is going to be no reconciliation with my brothers. And I think we see this in the names that he names his sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. The Lord has caused me to forget all those things that I've lost. And in God's providence, you know, there's a severe famine and his enemies, his brothers, his enemies, the ones who sold him into slavery, they're brought before him. And he has all the power and all the authority. And he devises the greatest scheme for retribution. You think about how brilliant he was to kind of look into the future and see what was going to happen here. He orchestrates things so that it's like the ghost of Joseph is haunting his brothers. He's haunting his enemies. And he says to them, you're spies. You're lying about your brother. I want you to bring your youngest brother here to me to prove that you're not spies. He gives them grain, but he puts their silver back in their sacks. And they look like 
guilty spies. And they know that if they're caught with this, they will be accused of being thieves. They will be thrown into prison and into slavery. But they go home with their grain. As you know, in the course of God's providence, they have to return because they need food. And this time they bring Benjamin. And Joseph has them sent to his house. And they're seated there at his table in their birth order. That's kind of creepy. How did he know that? And they ate and they drank. And then he sends them away with the grain that they want. But of course, Joseph has his cup for divination to prove how powerful he was. And he has it hidden in Benjamin's bag. And then he sent the police after them. And as they search for that cup of silver, you know, the brothers say to the officers, they say, if any one of us has that cup, he will die. And the rest of us will become our Lord's slaves. But of course not, Joseph says. Everybody knows this, even before the law was given, eye for eye. Joseph knows this. He says, if one of you stole my cup, then that one will be my slave. This isn't a death penalty matter. The rest of you will be free to go. And of course, the cup is found in Benjamin's sack. Benjamin will suffer the same exact fate that Joseph suffered. And so they're brought before Joseph in Genesis chapter 44. And in verse 16, Judah says, he says, what can we say? God has uncovered the guilt of your servants. Guilt about what? Guilt about Joseph. And Judah sees how God has worked in this mysterious providence to bring about justice. And he says to Joseph, he says, we are now my Lord's slaves. We ourselves, we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. And Judah goes on, he begs with Joseph in verse 33, and he says, now then please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy and let the boy return with his brothers. How can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? No, do not let me see the misery that would come upon my father. Finally, Judah pleads with him and says, Life for life. I will give my life for the life of the boy. And that's when Joseph reveals himself. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him. And if you're like me, sometimes when you read through these things, you skip over a line like this. But why does Joseph weep like this? Why does he weep so that even the Egyptians hear it? Does he weep for joy because he has finally driven them into the place of emotional suffering where he has been for the last 13 years over this horrible betrayal? Eye for eye, he finally has it. And now he can enslave them. Now he can exact his revenge. And he even has justice on his side. And that's how Hollywood would tell the story. But you see, Joseph, he could have had them made slaves, killed and thrown into prison a long time ago. He probably could have gone and hunted them down from his position and authority. So why does he weep? Because Joseph lived to see the day when his enemies were reconciled to him. He lived to see the day when his enemies once again became his brothers. There's something here that Joseph thought and persuaded he could never see this in his lifetime. How can God reconcile this? 
And Joseph is persuaded, perhaps even, that there's no way that God can reconcile this, even in the next lifetime. But Joseph, he was being wise as a serpent and gentle as a dove. And he didn't use his authority, his great power. He didn't use it to seek vengeance. He used his authority and his love to seek reconciliation. So listen to how Joseph understands God's mercy and how he understands God's providence, even toward his enemies. He says to his brothers in chapter 45 and verse 5, he says, Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you, to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. It was not you who sent me here, but God. See, Joseph, he'd come by the influence of the Holy Spirit to such a trusting in God's hand of providence. And you have to remember that Joseph, Joseph's life is happening here in Egypt before they're brought out through the Exodus to the law and the Ten Commandments. But Joseph has come to an understanding of God's providence in his life that he understands that even the evil actions of his brothers have worked to bring about God's salvation. Have you come to that point in your life? Even the evil deeds of wicked men will serve to bring about good to God's people. Joseph has come to that understanding. Joseph says to his brothers, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Love your enemies. I want to, I hopefully not belabor the point, but this is the clear law of the Old Testament. And it is not only explicit in the commands of the law, it's deeply implicit in the lives of the prophets and even of the patriarchs. Jesus did not come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. Love your enemies. John reminds us, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one. This is a command that you have had since the beginning. And that brings us to the second point. He says, yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him. So the way that the command is new is that Jesus, as he tells us, it's fulfilled in Jesus. That's the way that the command is new. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Jesus, like Joseph, was persecuted by his brothers, by his enemies. And Jesus, in our text, teaches that if someone strikes you on your cheek, and Jesus was injured when they struck him repeatedly on his face, and he was insulted when they slapped him and when they spit on his face. And Jesus taught as well that if someone wants to sue you and take your cloak, they took Joseph's cloak. And then the woman took his cloak. But they also took Jesus' clothes, didn't they? And then they dressed him up like a king. And they mocked him. And they bowed before him. 
But then they took his garments again, including his undergarments, and they cast lots for it, so that when he hung before the world, he hung naked. He knew the shame of hanging naked before the world. Jesus taught if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them two. Jesus was forced to carry his own cross to the place where he was crucified. So how does Jesus fulfill that law of eye for eye and tooth for tooth? And life for life. Well, Jesus' injury, as we think about Jesus' shame as he hangs naked on the cross, Jesus' abuse that he suffered, that came from evil men. But it didn't only come from evil men. Because in the mysterious providence of God, these are not the abuses that Jesus deserved for his breaking the law. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. Jesus did not deserve the penalty of the law because he always perfectly kept the law. These injuries did not come from men alone. They also, in the strange and mysterious providence of God, they came from his heavenly Father. The insults that you bear and that I bear, they come from men. And to one degree or another, we can say that we even deserve them as sinners. But Jesus, he bore that weight of that insult and that weight of that injury and that weight of that shame that you will never know. The insults that Jesus bore and the blows and the shame They came from his Father in heaven and on his person. It's that personal insult of sin against that holy God that has fallen on Jesus Christ. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, life for life. Jesus took the judicial wrath that you will never know. He took that upon himself, on his body, on the cross. And he died for those, for you. So think of it this way. For all of you who look to faith, look to Jesus Christ through faith, you will never know even the smallest experience of that injury, of that insult, and of that shame that we deserve for our sins because Jesus took that upon himself. On the cross, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. And Jesus has given his life for your life. How does Jesus fulfill that law? Love your enemies. Well, Jesus didn't do this for you when you were his friend. Jesus didn't do this for you when you were his friend. He did it for you while you were his enemy. Another mysterious statement of the scripture is that God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. So as I said this morning, the cross is how we know the definition of love. So we've said 
that everybody knows what love is, right? It's like a reflex. Well, yeah, we know love for ourselves, but nobody knows what love is apart from the cross of Jesus Christ. We don't know this love naturally. We can only know it supernaturally if it's been revealed to us by the fruit of the Spirit and through our union with Christ, our faith in him. So we know a love, and we have a love that the enemies of God will never know. If you put your faith and your trust in Jesus Christ, we have things that we will never know, praise God. The wrath of God against sin that we deserve, that perfect justice of eye for eye and tooth for tooth and life for life, we will never know that because Jesus knew it fully on our behalf. So we also have a love from God that the world, the enemies of God, they will never know as long as they remain enemies. So that supernatural offer of love, that goes out to the enemies of God. That offer of reconciliation, not the offer of condemnation. The offer of reconciliation, not the offer of revenge. That goes out even to God's enemies through the death of his son. Love your enemies. Eye for eye. So Peter in Acts chapter 2, I hope you heard the echoes of this, he preaches the same thing to his brothers that Joseph preached to his brothers after the resurrection of Jesus. Peter preaches to his brothers who are his enemies. He says, you intended this for evil, the crucifixion of Jesus, but God intended it for good. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, he says to them in verse 22, he says, Fellow Israelites, you sons of Jacob, you who are in the line of Joseph, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death, because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. You intended it for evil. Peter says, but God intended it for good. And when the people heard this, they reacted like Joseph's brothers did. They said to him, brothers, what shall we do? And you know this, Peter said, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. And if you think about it again in terms of our thinking this morning as we think about God's patience for centuries and centuries, you are the ones who are far off. All those whom God will call. You are a fulfillment of this promise that Peter gives in that day. On that day, 3,000 of Peter's enemies became his brothers. What you intended for evil, God intended for good. Notice this, that the evil deeds of wicked men could not stop God in his relentless accomplishment of salvation. 
And the evil deeds of wicked men cannot stop God, even today, in God's relentless application of salvation through the preaching of the gospel. And so that'll bring us to our last point, that its truth is seen in him and in you. And that brings us back to the text of Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, You have heard that it was said, Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. <laughs> but I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. <laughs> Jesus is saying, You will be in the image of your Father. This is exactly what your Father does. You who were once his enemies have become sons. And you are sons and daughters of your Father in heaven. But they are still enemies. And they're still dead in their transgressions and sins. And for the Christian, that is the definition of the enemy. Jesus says, well, these are the tax collectors. These are the pagans. These are the ones who know love, but they only know what natural love is. But you know a love that's greater than that love. You know a supernatural love. You're sons and daughters of the living God. But God shows love even to his enemies. As we said this morning, he causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he causes the rain to fall on the righteous and the unrighteous. God shows love even to the unkind and the wicked. We call this common grace, but God offers them something more, and you have something more to offer them as well. He offers them saving grace. He offers them salvation. And that's the same salvation that he offered to you when you were his enemy. And so will we, as the people of God, offer God's enemies less than this? Will we offer them not love? Will we only love those who love us? Will we greet only our brothers? Will we set our, ourselves up into Christian communes, as tempting as that is? because we're surrounded by like-minded people and that's much more comfortable? Will you offer your enemies at worst, will you offer them retribution and revenge because I'm good at getting back at you? Or will you at best offer your enemies the legal system, the judicial courts? Everybody has that kind of love, naturally. Don't worry, I'm not saying that there's no such thing as a lawsuit. But the love that we have as sons and daughters of God, it's not natural, it's supernatural. It's spiritual and it's a gift of the Holy Spirit from the one who sits at the right hand of God the Father. It's something that you have been given as a gift. It's a free gift to you. And so will you offer the world, your enemies, will you offer them reconciliation through faith in Jesus Christ? Will you offer them the grace that you have been given yourselves? And I get it. In the application of this, this requires real wisdom. And I am not going to deny, and Jesus doesn't deny, that this also requires suffering. Jesus says if someone strikes you, if someone sues you, if someone oppresses you, give, pray. Look for opportunities to offer them the opportunity of reconciliation. Don't waste your time in plotting revenge. Be like Joseph. He wasted his time in diligently plotting reconciliation. And if you think about it, it's brought reconciliation to you and to me. Those who were his enemies became his brothers. 
And so we are to be a son of God and daughter of God like the son of God. He plotted your reconciliation even from eternity past. It wasn't just 13 years he spent plotting it. It was from eternity past so that those who were his enemies might become his brothers and sisters. So dealing with the enemies of God will bring suffering. It's difficult. And I don't want to minimize that, and I don't want to pretend for one second that I'm good at that. Jesus has been clear that he sends us out as sheep among wolves. But I also want to say that you and I, we can have the confidence of the testimony of the entire Scripture. We have the whole of Scripture, not just the New Covenant, but these are nothing new. And we can be like Joseph. We can trust Jesus. And we can be like Jesus, who trusted in the providence of God that what your enemies intend for evil, God actually intends for good, even to the salvation of many. So God works all things, even the wicked acts of evil men, for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. So finally, I did say, I mentioned lawsuits, that Jesus, he's not abolishing the justice system. But judicial matters need to be dealt with judicially. They need to be dealt with appropriately, and when it's appropriate, to deal with them in court. But even when you have to deal with enemies in a judicial court, we want to remember that, of course, both our judicial courts and our personal interactions with others, they're all under the authority of King Jesus. We want to remember that our personal justice code and our message to our enemies is be reconciled to God through faith in Christ Jesus. This is the love that he offers to those who even are his enemies. So in closing, 1 John 2, chapter 7 and 8. 1 John chapter 2, verses 7 and 8 are three points I am not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and in you. So love your enemies. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we confess that because of your astonishing grace, that you have taken us who were your enemies. And we have, you have made us to be your sons and daughters through faith in Jesus Christ. Lord, please help that to sink in. Please help us to meditate on that. Please help us to remember that before our feet hit the ground in the morning. To remember how great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. So we ask that as your sons and daughters, that we would be, as it were, remade in your image, that we would be imitators of God as dearly loved children, and that we would learn what it means, but that we would also exercise with our lives living a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Lord, we pray that you would enable us to love one another. We pray that you would help us to love you. We pray that you would even help us to love our enemies. 
And so, Lord, we do pray for this generation, for those who are your enemies, for those who now even persecute and oppress us, who persecute and oppress our brothers and sisters, for those who reject your gospel, that you would enable us to be as wise as serpents and gentle as doves in plotting ways, Lord, to introduce them to your glorious Son and to his glorious gospel. Lord Jesus, this requires patient endurance, which is also a fruit of the Spirit. It requires perseverance in this calling. But Lord, we trust that even the wrath of men will praise you. And we ask that it would do so for the good of those who love you. So we ask that you would bring revival to this land, that you would bring revival to our churches, that Lord, you would even call our enemies to life through whatever providences are necessary, through the preaching of your word. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.